When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What do we do when things don't go as planned? What happens when your life doesn't turn out how you thought that it might? These are questions my guest this week has been wrestling with over the last two years after things didn't go as planned and things didn't turn out how they thought that they might. My guest this week is author and speaker Allison Fallon. And this episode is particularly special to me because I've known Allie for quite some time now. We've seen parts of our stories unfold together, and now we both live in the same city, and she is a force to be reckoned with. And many of you already know this. Ali has written and published more than 10 books, coached hundreds of writers, developed multiple writing curriculums, worked as a managing editor at Donald Miller's Storyline, and recently finished writing her latest book, Indestructible, a book about the shocking story of her marriage that didn't go as planned, the truth that shattered everything, and the beautiful unfolding around the realization that saving her marriage wasn't worth losing herself. I already got the chance to read her book, and there are so many things that I could say. I just don't know where to start. However, the most important thing I can convey is something Allie has said about herself. This book is the longest love letter she's ever written. Although Indestructible is only one woman's story, it serves as a powerful reminder to anyone who has been disillusioned by love and forced to come to the point in their story where they have to finally tell the truth about themselves. Because when chaos is present, change is often imminent. I am Brendan Harvey, and this is Sounds Good, the weekly podcast where we have conversations with inspiring people who are rejecting cynicism and using their lives to make an impact. Let's jump straight into this. Welcome to the studio, Allie. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Oh my gosh. So you and I have known each other forever, a, a long, long time. time. I, I mean, it's been since probably 2011. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I moved to Portland in 2011. So that means, I mean, we met for the first time in Portland. You yes. weren't living in Portland, but you were visiting. Yes. So it was probably like 2011, 2012. Somewhere right around it's there. It's a long time. It is a long time. I wow. know. It was really remarkable diving into your new book and being like, oh, I've I've known Allie for a lot of this stuff. Yeah. And I bet you were reading and thinking, you know, you know a lot of the people who I'm talking about <laughs> too and the places that I'm talking about because it's totally. Nashville and Portland. Yeah. It's my it's lived, my places. Both places. Yeah. Yeah. So that's so funny. I want to just start off by talking about your book. You've got this new book, Indestructible. I got to read it before it came out. I feel very, very yeah. cool. Tell me about this book. It's it's so good. Well, I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, it's a really personal story for me. It's a memoir, um, and it's the story of my marriage and divorce. So, you know, a personal story to me, it's really important to me in that sense. It's also really vulnerable, and it's also really an honor is the thing I keep saying. It's such an honor to be able to share this vulnerable part of my story with other people who might really identify or resonate with different parts of it. So 
Um, it has taken me a long time to get to the place where I could call the relationship that I was in an abusive relationship, mm. but but that's what it was. <laughs> and so I'm learning that there is a lot of power in speaking the words that are true words. Yeah. And when the truth about my marriage first came out, which I talk a little bit about in the book, but the truth about the life that my ex-husband was leading that I didn't know about, that was the first break in the facade that both of, both of us were presenting to the world. Um, that was kind of the first breaking point, I guess. And then slowly after that, it was a long, slow unravel of realizing a lot of other things that even untruths I had been telling that I didn't even really know I was telling. It was yeah. like, you know, all of the effort that goes into keeping the secrets about our lives because... Um, you know, one of the things I say in the book is that a life can look really good on Instagram and it can be feel really terrible to be actually living it. And that is how I would have described my life back then, that we were doing a really good job of making our life look good on Instagram. And anyway, so yeah, so that it's it was definitely wow. like a shattering of all that I thought was true and the starting point of everything really good and beautiful that has grown from that point. I mean, it's been yeah. it's crazy to think it's been two years, a little over two years, two wow. and a half years since the day that sort of shattered everything. And I mean, I want to emphasize that last part you said. It it really, the book is more about the start of something new yes. than the end of something. Totally. It's about growth and healing and hope. It's, totally. It's beautiful. And I love that. I, I can't believe it's actually only been two, two and a half years because crazy? it seems like so much has changed in your life in such a short amount of time. But I bet it still, does it still feel like forever too? I mean, in, it feels like both is the weird thing. And I think when I say that to people, I think a lot of people really resonate that it's weird that it was only two and a half years ago and so much has changed. And it's also like, that feels like a whole lifetime ago. So it weirdly feels like yesterday. And it also feels like, did that ever even happen? <laughs> you wow. Know? Yeah. So, but I think, you know, one of the things that I want people to get out of the book is because not everybody's going to share my experience. My experience is really unique. I think that there are a lot of uh, women in particular who are connecting with the book because they do share the experience. Yeah. But we all have experiences in our lives where things don't go the way that we thought they were going to go, you know? And if you would have told me 10 years ago that I'd be 34 years old and divorced, I would have laughed in your face. I'm certain <laughs> of it. And I mean, I even used to say when I was married that I just didn't believe in divorce. I mean, I yeah. talk about that in the book too. Like <laughs> my therapist asked me, what, how I felt about divorce. And I was like, I don't believe in divorce. And she was like, you don't believe that it exists. And I'm like, no, I just think if two people really love each other, they need to, you know, fight for love. Yeah. And fighting for love looks really different for me now than it used to. Anyway, that's a tangent. That's a tangent we should say, get back to. Okay. I want to say that what I want people to get out of the book is this idea that sometimes those dramatic left turns in our lives, most of the time, those dramatic left turns in our lives are the open portal for everything we've ever wanted. And as long as things are going exactly the way that we expected them to go, even if it's really great, even if my marriage had been a really happy, lovely marriage, if it had gone exactly the way I expected it to go, it's this opportunity for your ego to get really overinflated, mm. to feel like I've got total control over this. And, and something amazing happens when you realize you don't have total control over something is you're forced in a way to surrender to a force that's so much bigger than you. Wow. And uh, there was a woman who said to me, um, this is an introduction of the book, but I met a woman 
when I traveled to Israel-Palestine who had lost her son in the conflict in the Middle East. Her son was um, a Israeli soldier, and he was killed by a Palestinian sniper. And that loss, obviously, losing the loss of a child was the most devastating loss she could have possibly imagined. But I was so struck by her courage and strength, and what has grown out of that is her becoming a part of this incredible peace movement in the Middle East. And I asked her at one point how she had gotten so brave. This is before my marriage ended. <laughs> and she said to me, when the worst thing that could ever happen to you happens, then you realize you have nothing left to lose and you you can't help but be brave. Wow. And that was a turning. I, I didn't even really know what she meant at that point, but I felt it in my body. I just felt like this is important. Hold on to this message. And it was 18 months after that, that everything fell apart. And wow. that has really rang, rung true for me too. And that's the thing I hope that readers hear and hold on to after they're done with the book is that whether that worst case scenario for them has already happened or whether it happens sometime in the distant future, because I feel like most of us will have a hard time getting through this life without having something really heartbreaking happen to us or without walking ourselves into a heartbreak. I mean, but when those moments happen, if we can see it as this opportunity, it's like shattering the barrier that's between us and all the love that we've ever wanted and needed, then it doesn't feel like the end of the world. It actually feels like the beginning of something really incredible. I just I just got goosebumps hearing that. <laughs> um, maybe we can dive a little bit into the story and give some, you know, some context to where this experience of of growth and healing has come from. Yeah, um, for sure. And you mentioned, you know, you realize now you were in an abusive relationship and you can actually name that. But what did it look like early on? You know, what did dating life look like mm -hmm. and what did, you know, that early part of marriage look like? Well, our courtship, our dating relationship was really fast. That was the biggest thing. And you knew me during this time, I think, right? Didn't I was, met, maybe I met. was following you. So this is oh, funny. Okay. Like, I was a fan. Okay. And you're, <laughs> I don't even remember what your old maiden name was, but I remember like, liking that page on Facebook yeah. and like getting updates, reading your blog. Yeah. And then I remember real quick, yeah. uh, it changed to your new, your totally. new last name. Really quick. I mean, from the day we met in person to the day we got married was four months in a day. No way. So when I look back now as a 34 year old woman, I mean, I met him when I was 27, I guess. Uh, or maybe I was 28. I was 28 when I met him, just turned 28. And when I look back now, I think one of the biggest mistakes I made was it, everything just happened so fast. Mm -hmm. And I have learned to, to have more trust in things that grow very slowly because there just isn't, especially with a relationship, there just isn't time to really know someone in that amount of time. The hard part about it was, is on the external, our relationship seemed very romantic. The whole story was really romantic and fun to tell on a blog. Yeah. Like everybody got real wrapped up in the story, including me. And it seemed from the outside looking in, it was one of our favorite stories to tell in group settings because people would just kind of ooh and ah and think, oh my gosh, this is so amazing. He read an article you wrote online and then he reached out to you and contacted you and he just couldn't, you know, help but fall in love with you. And he knew from the minute that you Skyped that you were his wife and all these things. It seems really romantic and you write it down and it feels really romantic. Internally, I always felt pretty uneasy about... Our relationship, I felt like it was happening really fast. Uh, I felt a lot of anxiety around um, 
getting married to someone that I hardly knew. Did you ever voice those things? I did voice them a couple of times. Yeah, I, I and those concerns were always met with resistance. Hmm. And I've gone through a whole process with how I feel about that. You know, I'm, for a long time, I was really angry when I would remember these moments when I would say to him, I'm really anxious about this. I don't, I, I'm, can we push the wedding back? Is yeah. what I asked him twice if we could push the wedding back. And both times, I want to be careful how I say this, but both times he talked me out of it. I think that's fair to say. He talked me out of pushing the wedding back. And one of the times he was really reassuring, you know, really sort of, I uh, would classify that conversation as very sweet. The other time was much more frustrated. And again, I want to be careful how I remember the conversation. He was frustrated and angry and upset and really, really wanted me to stop talking about the fact that I was anxious about our wedding. Mm-hmm. And um, I talk about this in the book too, but I met a man who had been divorced twice and I gained a lot of insight from talking to him. One of the things he said to me was, my ex-husband was scared. That's oh. why he didn't want me talking about how I was scared. I don't know if that's true or not, but it helped me to have a lot of forgiveness and compassion for yeah. where JD might have been in that moment. So yeah, I did try to bring it up and was redirected. And that was a dynamic that should have been more concerning to me than it. And I, it was concerning to me, but I, I didn't voice how truly yeah. concerning it was to me. That that dynamic, the dynamic of control, the concern should have been I didn't feel safe to speak up about what was true for me. Yeah. And I didn't feel ready to get married when we got ready or when we got married. And I did it anyway. Did so, you did you almost kind of excuse it as, you know, I'm just gonna let him lead the way. Like I'm gonna trust him, totally. let him lead. Well, so here's one thing to add to the equation, and I don't know, I'm sure your readers are coming in terms of faith perspective from all over the map. But I grew up in a really evangelical environment, and what I was taught about how relationships operate was from a really evangelical worldview. And so for those who are listening who have that same upbringing or worldview, it won't be hard for them to understand. And for those who are coming from a different worldview, the gender roles are pretty specific. The man is meant to be the leader in the relationship. Um, Marriage is really highly valued. And so... The other, there's, this is another element that I was 28 and I wasn't married was, so I was sort of like late to the game, which I think in a wider cultural context, 28 doesn't feel late, but Mm -hmm. within the evangelical context, it felt late. So I felt there did feel like a sense of urgency and he, he was a pastor at a church. So that also felt like checking all the boxes, a sense of urgency there. And we were also waiting till we were married to have sex. So that adds another sense of urgency. So it was like he was in Florida, pastor at this church. I'm in Oregon. So we're like as far away geographically in the same yeah. country as we can possibly be. The waiting till you're married, that which is also part of that evangelical worldview upbringing. The man is the leader. Like all of these elements mixed together can help a person understand why I would be standing at the back of the aisle ready to walk down the aisle on my wedding day and the thought going through my mind is, I don't want to do this. Mm. And I do it anyway. So it took me a long time writing the book to answer that question for myself. Yeah. Like, why would a woman walk down the aisle when she doesn't want to? Um, but I think the answers to that question for me come from what it feels like to be a woman in the world and what it feels like to be a woman in the evangelical world. And what I was taught about love and relationships and what really matters and 
Um, also, just the challenge as humans that we all face in really showing up in our lives with our whole hearts and telling the truth about ourselves. I'm learning to have compassion for that version of myself who couldn't tell the truth about what she was feeling because it's really hard. It's really hard. It's the only way that we ever do anything meaningful in the world is showing up and telling the truth about ourselves, but it's the absolute hardest thing that you can ever do. You notice, I start to notice now at least people who are scared to show up and tell the truth about themselves, what they do instead is tell the truth about other people. So Mm. it's a lot of finger pointing, like all the stuff you see in social media now about pointing fingers at other people. They're wrong because of X, Y, Z, or these people need to fix. That's all just people being scared of showing up in their life with their whole heart. Wow. And the harder thing always to do is to tell the truth about yourself. It's harder than to tell the truth about other people. So, and I had to do that when I wrote the book too. You know, I mean, it would have been really easy to tell the story in a way where I tell the quote unquote truth about him and what he did and what he said and what happened. Just totally burn him. Totally burn him. And I could have enlisted people in that story. I think actually it would have been fairly easy to enlist people in the story because the details are salacious enough that people, it's like tabloid style stuff. And I think people would have felt defensive of me. And I think it would have lacked, if I had chosen that route, it would have lacked the transformative power that it's had for me to tell the story the way I told it. It would have um, unnecessarily burned him because I don't think he's a bad person. I think he is a hurting person like all of us are. (laughs) And I think it would have lacked the transformative power that it has been having for readers too. And one of the things I really wanted was if there is a woman who's in an abusive relationship, whether it's emotionally abusive, spiritually abusive, physically abusive, who comes to this story, what I want her to know is she has the agency to make a change. And as long as I'm blaming him, she doesn't see that she has an agency to make a change. It's like, as long as we're pointing the finger at somebody else, we are sacrificing all of the power we have to create change in our own lives. And if you want power to create change in your own life, we have to stop focusing on what other people are doing and start taking accountability for our own choices, our own words, our own actions, our own lives. The analogy is, if you think of it like you've got $10 to spend in a day, and you can either spend those dollars, dollar for dollar, on someone, like some, you can use that energy towards someone else, toward fixing them, correcting them, blaming them, you know, changing them, whatever. Or you can spend those $10 on taking accountability for yourself and your own thought process. And, and I just want to spend $10, the yeah. $10 on myself. It's going gonna, it's gonna to move the needle yeah, more. Agreed. Yeah. Just, just spending the dollar trying to get to like, trying to get somebody else to change is not going to guarantee that they change, but intentionally saying, I'm going to put this dollar into changing myself. Like you're going to get a dollar's worth of change exactly. if you're like going all in on that. Totally. Yep. You just talked about this, but I think a lot of people would go into this book, you know, maybe thinking if they knew your story, if they had kind of experienced mm-hmm. um, your life over the last few years thinking, okay, this is going to be a book where she just burns and destroys JD. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you tell the truth in the first third of the book, it mm-hmm. seems like. And then really quickly you move on and it's the the journey that you go on and the process you have of learning to trust yourself again and learning what love looks like and ultimately getting to a point where you just said that you don't think JD is a bad person. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine, you know, earlier in the process of the divorce, you would say he was a bad person. Would that be a fair characterization where you're like, that was what your thought process was at the time? Yeah, I did my fair share of blaming him for sure. I thought, you know... 
you <laughs> you get to choose the lens that you look through. So when I was looking through the lens of of like you ruined this, you know, like we had something really good going and you the choices you made broke that. And I think it was important for me to go through the whole process. So it was important for me to be sad and mad and all the things. I, I'm I would never encourage someone to be dishonest about how they're feeling. In fact, one of the things I often say is the feelings that we spend so much time trying to avoid are actually the cure. You feel a feeling all the way through and it lets you go. So like one feeling I tried to really for a really long time to avoid was anger. Mm. I really didn't want to be angry with him because anger felt like well, first of all, I mean, he had been, he had spent most of our marriage being angry with me. So anger felt like this very threatening energy and it had never really felt safe for me to get mad. So I really, really avoided getting mad. I mean, it was probably a full year after the divorce had happened that a therapist said to me, I've never seen you get mad about this. You know, she said, you talk about what happened where other women would be like throwing his clothes out the window and like lighting his car on fire. And she's like, you've never... <laughs> done anything vindictive and she was like I have a hard time even getting you to say that you're angry and I had to get to a place where I got really angry angry enough to throw things and break them and and then it's like you move through that anger and it it transforms it's like um like the energy of fire it transforms you into something else you know it dissolves what was there before and then there's space for something new to grow so I really did have to get angry you know at him I guess in order to realize that I wasn't angry anymore and that I, I was something else. I was like, you know, could see the humanity in him. And that helped me to see the humanity in myself too. I mean, I think the hardest person for me to forgive in all of it was myself. The woman who stood at the, I mean, I had that image in my head for so long of the woman who stood at the top of the aisle on my wedding day and didn't say out loud, I don't want to do this, you know? I mean, how... Did I do that to myself? I had a hard time forgiving her for letting me get to the place where I was five years yeah. later, where I was heartbroken and alone. And and that was the hardest person to forgive, honestly. How do you make sure that you're not fully blaming yourself for something that somebody who is being abusive did to you? You know, yeah. how how are you finding this balance of being like, yeah, I've got room to grow. I can empathize with this person who hurt me while also saying, this isn't my fault. Yeah. Or correct me if, if that's not what it should be at no, all. No, I mean, I think that's... So part of how... One thing I've done and that I would really recommend for anyone who's in, an, in a position where you feel like there's any sort of manipulation or control or abuse is make sure there are people in your life who can see clearly in ways that you can't. So I had friends that I started to rely on their perception of things over my own for a period of time. Not because I'm not trustworthy, but because my vision had been clouded by the manipulation and control that went on in the relationship for so long. So manipulation, what it does to your brain is it starts it, gaslighting is a term yeah. that a therapist used for someone who constantly talks you out of trusting your perception of things. And when you've been constantly talked out of trusting your perception, you start to see things really not, you can't see clearly. So I just started asking friends, can you help me? Can you tell me, affirm me when my perception is correct and can you help to correct me when my perception is off? And that was really helpful. And I had therapists who, you know, especially a therapist who specializes in trauma and PTSD, because your perception is also altered dramatically by trauma. So 
So I had really great therapists who helped me with that also. But I will say, to you know, I think this is another aspect of the answer to your question, that although I have a lot of compassion and softness in my heart for him, there is no space in my life for contact with him. And maybe there will be someday. I don't know. I can't answer that question. But I, at the recommendation of a therapist, did what's called total no contact, which is exactly how it sounds, especially when you've been in an abusive relationship with somebody. It's, I think, really important to have very clear boundaries that you have zero, like no text message, no email, no nothing. It was through lawyers and through therapists, and that was it. If there was any information that needed to be relayed, that was how it was relayed. Mm. But um, it's been over two years now that I've had total no contact with him, and I really don't have any desire to be in contact yeah, with him. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think at this point, I, enough healing has happened. You need space for healing to happen. Yeah. And once healing has happened, it becomes easier to have contact reintroduced because now I'm not questioning my perception anymore. However, even still today, I think if I bumped into him in public, I probably would be okay. But I'm not like itching for the day when yeah, that happens. Yeah, there's not interest for no, it. No, uh-uh. Yeah. Yeah. That I don't. I don't wish him any ill, but I, I don't really feel like seeing him. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about the process of writing this book and choosing to to put this all out there because, um, you know, I know that there are people in your life who you were trusting and who you were sharing, but it's not like before this moment you had put all the details out there. Mm-mm. Was it? What was the feeling when you were getting ready to to approach? turning this into something that a bunch of people are going to read. Yeah. Well, (laughs) it's been baby steps, honestly. I told myself when I first sat down to write the story that I was writing it for me and I just needed to write all the true stories so that I could heal and I didn't care if anyone ever read it. And so I literally booked eight days at the beach down in Florida in a little cabin and wrote the whole story. In eight wow. days, um, uh, like a day or two on the other end of it, when I got back to Nashville, I kept writing. Did but you I write wrote, it? Did you write it good, or did you just like get it oh, all out? How it does was that work? A true <laughs> Anne Lamott shitty first draft. It was like, <laughs> well, and it was like in my angry phase, so it was like yeah. a really blaming, angry, mean. <laughs> but I needed it. I mean, yeah, it was like it needs all to get the down truth. on paper. Yes. So, but it was 55,000 words. That was the first draft. And I let, (laughs) and then I let that sit for a long time. Um, That was November. So November of 2016 is when I wrote the first draft and I let it sit for a couple months and then picked it up in early 2017 and did my first revision. And the first revision was the first time where I really started answering more of the hard questions. Like why did I get married when I didn't want to? That was a hard question to answer. Question number two, why didn't I tell someone the truth sooner? Question number three, why did I stay for as long as I did? And answering those questions were, those were the most healing questions to answer for me because what I started to realize was the answers to those questions were things like, I wanted to sacrifice my life for the sake of love. I really believed that what I was doing was the right thing or I wouldn't have done it. And until I started to uproot those beliefs, I couldn't, I couldn't correct them. If that's, I don't love the way that I'm saying that, but I couldn't see that 
the way that I had been wrong about what love was and what it meant. Yeah. And what it's You're trying to, you know, martyr yourself for love when what you were experiencing wasn't love. Wasn't love. Wow. So, so you had to change the way that you, what you thought love was. Completely change what Can I Can you talk I mean, about that transformation? Totally. I had to, and part of, I mean, I talk about it a little bit in the book too, a lot in the book, but it's like this total dismantling of what, of what I had constructed to believe was true. It like my worldview about love and faith and God and what my role is in the world, what it means to live a life of meaning, which was very impacted is too small of a word to say how much my evangelical faith and upbringing was it that I collected the pieces from there and I built this idea of who I thought God was and Mm. what I thought faith was and what I thought love was and how you were supposed to be love in the world. And so it was terrifying to totally dismantle it because it was the only thing I'd ever known. And I really didn't want to completely abandon my faith because my faith felt really important to me. felt like the only thing that I could cling to even in the hardest times. So letting go of that felt totally terrifying. Um, But what I found was that um, there's a great Richard Rohr quote. He says that God broke all the rules in order to love me. And I think that really resonated with me during the worst points of the divorce. um, Because one of the things that happened for me is I just let myself be human. (laughs) Like, yeah, there's a scene in the book where I think I know the one you're going to talk about. Yeah, and I love it. I actually wrote it down. <laughs> Where I drink a bunch of wine all by myself in my house. I did a lot of drinking in the year after the divorce. <laughs> which, you know, I mean, at one point I was like, am I an alcoholic? And I asked a, I asked a friend, like, do I need to be concerned about my drinking? Because I was drinking every day and I was drinking a lot. And she was like, well, let's, let's talk. She set a date. She was like, let's talk on that date. And if you're still concerned about it. She was like, right now I think you're grieving and you're coping and just you need yeah. to just let yourself cope and let yourself totally unravel, which was such great advice for me in that particular <laughs> point in time. I'm not saying it's universal advice for everybody, but it was just good advice for me because I had been so focused on living this perfect life and yeah. keeping myself together and like having pulling myself up by my bootstraps and sort of having all of the answers and and this idea that like I was gonna like polish myself and be this incredible Christian and then like present myself to the world and be so proud of, you know, like the work <laughs> yeah. that I was doing in the world. And I feel like where I met God for the first time, so strange to say for the first time, cause it's like I was born into this family that was very, had a, the focus was on faith, but I think I met God for the first time that night, just totally drunk in my house by myself, lighting a bonfire <laughs> on my back porch <laughs> Because I was just so desperate, you know, and I think we meet God in the times when we're desperate. That's that's when um, when we need need Him the most. And the only way that God can get through to us is when our ego is out of the way. And so, as long as what we're doing, our strategy for living our life is working for us, that's all ego self. And as long as that's in the way, it's like it's like a plexiglass around us and it's like people and God and spirit can get close, but can't, can't actually touch you. And that's what I felt like living in my marriage was like, you know, um, he's a pastor of a church and we're like doing ministry and living life for the Lord and like really fighting for our marriage and 
like just a lot of real patting ourselves on the back or I guess I can't speak for him. I was, I feel like I was like living a life of, of judgment, which I didn't know or see at the time. I remember now having a friend tell me that she was getting divorced and I, even living in the marriage that I was living in, I remember my thought process at the time being like, oh, that's so devastating. I would never get divorced. Mm. I didn't think of that like judgment toward her. I didn't, it didn't register as judgment to me. But at the time I was just like, I didn't, I saw myself as untouchable. Yeah, I was, unbu- I was above it. And so it wasn't until that night in my apartment when I'm so desperate and, um, or this is still when I was living in the house. I was so desperate. I lit a bonfire in the backyard. I'm burning my old wedding quilt and a little lace bolero that I wore on my wedding day and my marriage certificate and old credit cards and stuff in the bonfire in the backyard. And then I've decided that my house is cursed with evil spirits (laughs) because it won't sell. And um, so I Google what to do when your house is cursed and start running around the house with pots and pans. I mean, it was like, I was such a nightmare that night. But it was also the first time that I feel like I really let myself come totally undone. And it was so important for me. I mean, I weirdly hope everyone has a moment like that in their life where you just feel like you've totally lost it because on the (laughs) other side of that is just this realization that life is so fragile and we don't have a lot of control over it. And there are a lot of things you do have control over, but you don't have control over everything. At the end of the day, we're all just human and we can be struck by heartbreak and illness and a loss of control. And in that place, in our humanity and in our brokenness is really where we find like all the, all the joy and all the love and all the richness that we have been craving and looking for. Wow. That's amazing. It makes me wonder what the transformation has been like for you in how you allow yourself to be perceived by others. Because mm-hmm. when you were in your marriage, it sounds like you were really intentional about making sure that people's perception of you was, you know, perfection in many totally. ways. And now, you know, you've got this book about a lot of low moments. Um, How are you trying to, not just like in in the way that you put yourself out in books, but like how are you trying to uh, present yourself just in your daily interactions now? How has that shifted for you? Well, it's an ongoing journey. I don't think it ever, even after everything I've been through, I don't think it ever, it still doesn't feel easy for me at least to let someone really see the parts of me that I'm ashamed of or embarrassed of. I'm learning, though, to remember that those parts of me are the most intriguing. They're the most remarkable. They're the most transformative. They're the, they're the parts of you that another human soul can actually connect with. So it's like we walk around our lives perfecting our Instagram feeds because you get your ego, your, the external, you get attention for that. You get attention, you get affirmation, and it gives you this little dopamine hit. So it feels good for a second, but it fades so fast. And the same thing with any sort of addiction, right? Like shopping or drinking or whatever gives you this little dopamine hit. So it's like for a second, it feels really good. Meanwhile, underneath all that, our souls, the most human part of us is craving connection and authenticity and vulnerability and softness. And that only comes from sharing our brokenness with people. So so I try to remember that and do things like recently a friend of mine confronted me because I had taken something she said and posted it on Instagram and didn't quote her or attribute her. And when she brought it up, I realized I knew I had done it. I knew it was just a shitty thing to do. And I, it wasn't like, I'm like not a clever thief. Cause I, 
because I know she follows me on Instagram, but like <laughs> it was just a moment of laziness. Yeah, you're and, like, well, I, I've got an audience. I'll share it with them. Totally. What are you going to do with totally. it? Totally. So uh, laziness, selfishness, denial, whatever you want to call it. And I just did that. Well, so then when she confronted me on it, we had a little, you know, we're such good friends that yeah. we can have, we can like kind of hash it out with each other. And we, and that's good. It's a great friend moment. You can stay friends and still be like, she's like, I'm angry at you. And I'm like, that was really an awful thing of me to do. I'm so sorry. And then, you know, we have a moment. But so then I decided to share about that on Instagram because I'm like, nobody talks about this kind of stuff on Instagram. And I felt like, what I had taken from her was the credit. And so I felt like this was a way that I could pay it back was to tell the story on Instagram and give her the credit back. So I did that. And it was just, you know, I felt like this is going to make people uncomfortable because nobody talks about this kind yeah. of stuff on Instagram. It's like, I did something really terrible. Every, th- every time I've done anything terrible in my life, it's been for the same reason because I'm grasping at love when I already have it. And so I told the story on Instagram and apologized to her and gave her the credit. And just got the most overwhelming response from people. Um, I think there there probably are a handful of people that made uncomfortable. I had even close friends who were like, oh my gosh, that was so awkward. (laughs) I can't believe you did that, you know? But I think it's a reminder that people are drawn to vulnerability. You know, they're they're drawn to you most when you share the part of you that you least want to share. And so I try to remember that, that in those moments in our life when we want to put our best foot forward, sometimes the best thing we can do is just show up in our life with our whole heart, in our humanity, show a little bit, pull back the curtain and show your soul, your true, the trueness of your human spirit, you know, yeah. which is both your strength and your, your brokenness. It's both. It's not, mm. it's not like airing your dirty laundry for the sake of airing your dirty laundry. It's like showing your softness and your strength. Yeah. Your resilience. I like that. And and that is what I hope the book is too, because the book is not like a wah wah like victim story of this terrible thing that happened to me. The book is me showing up in the wholeness of my the truth of my life. It's like here's the most um, the darkest moment of the last year of my life, and also here's the brightest moment of the last year of mm. my life. I mean, I end. Well, I don't want to give the ending away, but <laughs> we'll there are a, a lot secret. of bright moments in the yeah, book as well. You it's know? really sweet. Yeah. I love that so much. And it, it reminds me of in the book, you've got all of these stories of you showing up with various characters mm-hmm. uh, and just being real and raw and vulnerable. Like I think about you showing up at yoga class yeah. with your yoga instructor, who's essentially a stranger and, yeah. and just like letting it all out, <laughs> like sharing your story with her more than, like before you've shared it with anybody yeah. else just because because you're like, this is a safe place and I'm just going to let it go. Yeah. I mean, it's so funny that I feel like that happens a lot of times with me when I will go share my story places. And vulnerability, vulnerability invites vulnerability. Hmm. So when you're vulnerable with people, you almost always will see them be vulnerable with you. Not always. I think there are sometimes when people are not ready to be vulnerable or they're way too scared to be vulnerable. So then they won't. And that's an uncomfortable this is a little bit of a tangent, but that's an uncomfortable place when you've been vulnerable and someone's not vulnerable with you. Yeah. That can feel a little bit like uh, an imbalance. Do you think it's maybe, though, giving people like a stepping stone so that maybe the next time somebody's vulnerable with them, they are closer to opening up? Of course, yes. I just think that um, we can't use vulnerability as a leveraging chip, yeah, expecting that's good. that someone's going to be vulnerable. It has to be an offering. 
It's like, this is my offering of vulnerability, whether or not you're vulnerable with me, I'm choosing to be vulnerable with you. That's good. And so you're essentially giving someone the opportunity to hurt you. And what they might do is they might hurt you. So I think we need to know that when we're being vulnerable. And that's why in an abusive dynamic, that's what is happening in an abusive dynamic is one person's being vulnerable and the other person isn't. Anyway, so that's a little bit of a tangent. Where were we going with that? We were talking about... Um, um, yoga. Oh, yes. Up. Okay, so vulnerability invites vulnerability. So so Sarah, who was the yoga instructor at the studio that I was really drawn to from the very beginning, is a, a very vulnerable human. And I think I knew that from the minute that I saw her. Interesting. I just saw it in her essence. And so I trusted her really instantly. And weirdly, like we had never spoken any words to each other. And I was like, <laughs> I'm here because I really want to have a baby. And we've been trying. And I, and then, you know, just like <laughs> telling her that I'd been trying to get pregnant for two years and couldn't get pregnant. And I had not told anyone else this. And then I'm telling it to her, like you said, I think that there was a weird safety in that because um, I didn't feel like I had to put on a show for her in part because of her vulnerability and in part because she was so outside of my social circle. It was like I had this social circle where I was like doing the song and the dance and putting on the show and people who followed me on Instagram and I felt like I had to have it all together. And then I walk into a yoga studio and for the first time I'm like, this is what it feels like to not have to have it all together. Yeah. So I'm just like telling her the whole thing. But, um, you know, she and I grew a really beautiful friendship out of that, uh, those early interactions. And you learn... What I was going to say is it happens to me a lot when I will share this story publicly is I share the story and then people will come up to me and they'll tell me secrets that they've never told anyone else before. And I'm always like, we're total strangers. This is the craziest <laughs> thing. But also like have such an honor. It's such an honor yeah. to have someone share those secrets with you. And the thing that I always say now is I want to challenge you to go tell this secret to someone who actually knows you, not because there's anything wrong with them sharing it with me, yeah. but because sharing with me is just practice that's good. It's, it's like, I can, I'm going to hold this for you and I'm going to respond in the way that is healthy to respond. And now I want you to go find someone in your life that you trust, who's, who you believe is also going to respond the way I responded with compassion and grace and softness and go tell them. Cause it's 10 times more vulnerable to tell someone who only knows the presented part of you, like the perfectly presented part of you. It's 10 times more vulnerable to tell them than it is to tell a total stranger. And it's great to practice on a total stranger because yeah. you just get the practice with, of the words coming out of your mouth and the feeling that you feel when someone goes, you're normal, you're human, I get it. Yeah, it's so normal, yeah. you know? And then you can sort of take a deep breath and go, okay, okay, maybe now I can go tell someone in my <laughs> real life, you know? But that, honestly, the step one in shattering the facade is telling the truth. And the truth for as awful as it can be because that's where my story starts too, is the truth coming out of what was really happening. The, for as awful as it can be, it has a strong reputation for getting us out of ruts. So if you're feeling stuck, the first thing I always tell people to do is tell the truth. There's something you're wanting to say that you can't say almost always if we're feeling stuck in our life, in our writing, whatever. And so, you know, that day that I found the truth was like, this feels like the worst thing that could ever possibly happen. And it's actually the start of everything beautiful that has come from that place. You can't, you know, you can't really do anything if you're not telling the truth. So. Man, that's beautiful. And 
this idea of vulnerability, it seems to tie really closely into this idea of being both soft and strong. Yes. I think that as you pursue that vulnerability, you gain both. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you lose the the border you've built around yourself, but it, it makes you, you know, it almost makes you stand up straighter. Totally. And it's interesting that you mentioned standing up straighter because I talk a lot about yoga in the book. Yoga was a huge part of my healing process. And it wasn't until later I started reading like Bessel van der Kolk and the research around how powerful body movement and yoga can be for healing PTSD and rerouting neurological pathways. And it's just, it's incredibly profound. But yoga is also on its most basic level, such an amazing, your body is such an amazing metaphor for everything in life. And, you know, they'll say in yoga that the only reason we get strong is so we can be soft Like the only reason that you get strong is so you can also be flexible and the only reason you're flexible is so you can also be strong. You have to have both. You've got to have an incredibly strong core to be able to do all the twisty movements and stuff that everyone does in yoga or to, you know, do like a backbend, which in yoga they call them heart openers because your heart, your chest is actually opening when you bend all the way back. In order to do that, you have to have a massively strong core. Wow. And you can't do one without the other. So that's been, I mean, it's just been an interesting you you go into a yoga class and you, for f- the first 50 minutes of the class, you know, fight through the shaking muscles and everything to hold the postures and you push yourself far beyond your physical capacity or what you thought you could do. And then the last thing you do in a yoga class is what they call savasana, which is total surrender. It's like you lay on the floor, corpse pose, let everything go. And Sarah would always say in class, it's the energy of dropping a rock into a pond just like total surrender. You let yourself melt into the floor. And they say Savasana is the most important posture of the entire class. It's that softness. Hmm. At the end, like you fight, 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 fight for strength. And then you let it all go and you let it sink into your, the changes that you've just fought for, you let them sink into your body. I think every time I'm just like, man, yoga is such an incredible metaphor (laughs) for life, you know? It's so funny that you say that because I was thinking about all the times I've taken yoga classes when I was in college and after college and on the days where I wasn't feeling it and I was showing up out of obligation, when I did Shavasana, it never felt great because I didn't put all the work in before it yeah. to make it feel great either. You know, that it was... <laughs> You're uh, like, I feel like I'm kind of cheating. I'm just... Yeah. yeah. And I don't even have a deep metaphor for that. I'm just thinking that's hilarious that, uh, you know, it's, the, it's most important yes. when you, you know show that strength first. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, Maybe, (laughs) maybe we'll start wrapping up and what I'd love to do is, is end with asking, how do you know when to walk away and and when to stay? You know, I feel like that's such a difficult thing to, to know, you know, should I stay here and fight it out or is it most healthy for me and maybe even other people if I pull myself outside of this? Yeah. That is the question I get more often than any other question. I mean, I get emails like that all the time and it's heartbreaking for me because there really is no easy answer and I wish I could sit down with every person and walk through the specifics of their situation and really hear them. But a couple of pieces of feedback or advice I would give. Number one is to start to tell the truth about what's really going on inside of you. So, and by that I mean admitting your human limitations and I, I wish I would have done this sooner. I wish I would have been talking to friends about what was going on behind closed doors and really talking about how painful it was for me, how hurt I was, how angry I was, how um, how hard this was for me. Because 
I think if I had done that, I would have gotten, I would have had the support I needed to walk away before things got as bad as they did. But I think the reason I didn't do it is because I didn't, I really wanted to be so strong. And it's so counterintuitive that that happens, you know, like those of us who really want to be a force for good in the world, we're trying so hard. We're like giving all of the energy and effort that we have. And sometimes the most transformative thing you can do is just say like, I actually can't, I don't have the capacity. I don't have the answers. I don't have the strength. I don't have the strength of will. I I just don't have it in me to give right now. And when I rewind my marriage all the way to the beginning, I think like if I would have just said that before my wedding day, like I don't have it to give, I don't have the trust to give you right now. I wish I did. I wish I trusted you enough because I did wish I trusted him enough to marry him. He, you know, he really wanted to marry me and I, I wish I had it to give, but I didn't. That was the truth of where I was at. And instead I just went like, I can figure this out and I will, you know, get over my fear and anxiety and I'll just like pull myself together and make this happen. And I think when we start walking down that trail, it's that's like we have veered off of the trail of authenticity and truth and love. So that's one piece of advice I would give to people. And um, the other thing is, you know, we can't really love people until we are healed. And so that we're giving from a, we're giving that love from a really authentic place. And in order to heal, a lot of times we have to create really strong boundaries. If you think of it, like people oftentimes give this example of boundaries, like it's like a fence around a playground. Now suddenly the kids feel safe to play. Okay. We don't want to be five years old playing on a playground forever, but for a period of time when, when you have a big wound or when you're trying to grow yourself up emotionally. There is a period of time where going no contact with people, quitting a job where a boss is really harsh with you or quitting a job that is not, that doesn't feel good for your heart or for your spirit or cutting off contact with a parent who says harsh words to you or ending a romantic relationship that is bringing up too much anxiety for you to handle. So I'm like the examples I'm giving, I'm mentioning are not necessarily abusive. They're just you know, for a period of time, it can be really helpful um, and necessary actually to create these really strong boundaries where you're like, I'm only going to surround people, surround myself with people who speak kind words to me. I'm not going to come into contact with anyone who says any, who anyone who's harsh with me. I'm not going to, I'm just going to like create this really safe place for me to have some heart healing. Not because that's how we want to live in the world forever, because I think that there's a lot of value to pushing yourself outside of your comfort zone and um, loving people who don't have what it takes to love you back. But you can't do that until you've got the strength of spirit and strength of heart to do it. And so it's, it's um, you know, in yoga, they would say like a, a yoga flow, you do um, like open, close, open, close, open, close. And I think that is a great metaphor for what we do with our hearts. You open your heart to someone and you just go all the way for love, right? Like two feet in, there's no other way to really do love other than to just completely be vulnerable with a person. And then when you experience a heartbreak or a wounding, you close for a while. It's not because, not because it's not bad. It's like not, not because you want to have a closed heart, but because you need to protect for a period of time in order to heal, in order to, you know, like, to let the experience of what happened really transform you and let it sink in. And, um, and then you open again and then you might close again for a time and then you open and then you close and then you open. And that's where the strength and the softness comes from is knowing that you can do both. So 
I think you know what's good for your heart and what's not good for your heart. And I think I want to give people permission to do what's good for your heart, even if it doesn't make you feel like it it seems like it makes you look like a really good person. You know, I, one of the things I say in the book is like the harder we try to be good people, the worse people we become. <laughs> Sometimes it's like do the thing that's really good for your heart, even if it makes you feel like kind of a shitty person. It's like filing for divorce was the last thing on my list of things that I had wanted to do in my life. It made me feel like a bad person, but it's the best thing I've ever done. I needed to do it. And do you feel like coming away from that, it made you a better force for love and change? Of course, yes. There's no way that I would be the person I am if I had stayed in my marriage. There's just no way. I was in survival mode the whole time. Yeah. That's beautiful. Mm. I just want to tack on one more question because it, it kind of reminded me of of this passage you have at the very end of your book where you talk about hope and you talk about even in the midst of experiencing more heartbreak and more pain, Mm -hmm. uh, you still felt hopeful because you were experiencing that. And so, you know, for, for people who, you know, maybe need a little bit of encouragement that hope is coming at the end of that pain, what would you offer them? I would say the hope is that we can start to see every single thing that happens to us in this life as an opportunity to learn and an opportunity to grow in love. And when you can start to see that and recognize that you have an incredible resilience to experience pain and survive it and come out actually better on the other side or more true, that's the, a better way to say it than better. It's not really better, but like a more true version of you on the other side. And when you realize that, that's when you really get the advice that my friend from the beginning of the book gave me, which is like, you realize you have nothing left to be afraid of. You've got nothing to lose. Pain is, it's not pleasant, but it's temporary. And everything that happens to me is this opportunity to become a more true version of myself. It's all, that's how I move through the world now. That's the biggest difference is things happen to me. And I think like that wasn't pleasant, like getting rejected from, a dozen publishers <laughs> with this book isn't pleasant, but it's all a shattering of the ego that's getting in the way of me experiencing more love in my life. And in that sense, it's like, that's amazing. <laughs> what do you have to lose? You know, it opens you up to offer more of yourself, uh, more of your creativity, more of your love, more of your compassion, more of your gifts to the world. And that's, that's a win for everybody. Oh my goodness, isn't Allie such a powerhouse? I'm struck by this idea that the only way we can do anything meaningful in the world is by showing up and telling the truth about ourselves. That's the hardest work that we could ever do. If you're unsure where to start on your journey of healing, take Allie's advice and start by telling the truth about what is really going on inside of you. Don't be afraid to name your limitations. Next, understand that we can't love people until we are healed. So do your inner work. And finally, do what's good for your heart. And trust that love will be the force for the change that you need. After listening to this episode, I highly recommend following Allie online. Check her out on Instagram at at Allie Fallon. And make sure to go read her blog too. We put all of the information about how to find her up on the show notes for this week's episode. So make sure to go check it out. But more importantly go and buy her book. Indestructible is now available for pre-order exclusively at indestructiblebook.com. And when you pre-order, you get an exclusive pre-release digital copy so you can read it before everybody else. Like me, I feel super cool because I got to do that. It's pretty neat. Go do it. 
If you're new to Sounds Good, we would love for you to stick around. If you connected with this episode, you'd also love my conversations with the founder of Thistle Farms, Becca Stevens, as well as singer-songwriter Grace Tyson. You can find these episodes and more than 100 other inspiring episodes at soundsgoodpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast is created by me, Brandon Harvey, as a part of Good Good Good, a community that believes in the power of celebrating good news and becoming good news. Chad Michael Snapley and the team at CM Studio edit and mix the show, and Christy Karen Brock offers production support. You can get lots of hopeful stories on social media by following us everywhere at Good 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 CO. We also create a beautiful quarterly newspaper that celebrates the people, ideas, and movements that are changing the world for the better. And yes, it's a real newspaper. And yes, it shows up in the mail. And yes, you can subscribe. And I highly recommend it. You can check that out and see what else we do at Good 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 by visiting goodgoodgood.co. And on that note, that is a wrap for this week's episode. Go out and remember that you are a gift to the world. Do not numb it, dumb it down, alter it, suffocate it, judge it, or destroy it. You are a gift. Sound good?